0: Hi, I'm Len Epp from LeanPub, and in this LeanPub Front Matter podcast, I'll be interviewing Diego Zamboni. Based in Switzerland, Diego is an enterprise security architect at Swisscom, the giant Swiss telecoms company. He has over 27 years of experience in various areas, from self-healing systems to cloud computing, amongst others. Diego is also a popular writer and speaker, and you can read his blog at zzamboni.org and follow him on Twitter at zamboni. Diego is the author of two books, Learning CF Engine, Automated System Administration for Sites of Any Size, and his latest book, Learning Hammerspoon, Unleash the Power of Automation on Your Mac. In this interview, we're going to talk about Diego's background and career, his professional interests, his books, and at the end, we'll talk a little bit about his experience working with a conventional publisher on his first book and using LeanPub to publish his second book and, and, uh, and actually republish his first book. So thank you, Diego, for being on the Front Matter podcast.
1: Thank you, Len, for the invitation. I'm happy to be here.
0: I always like to start these interviews by asking people for their origin story. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about where you grew up and how you first became interested in computers and technology.
1: Um, of course, yeah. Actually, I I can go on at length about that. Feel free to interrupt me if I if I go on for too long. Um, I I've basically been interested in technology for almost as long as I can remember. Uh, my my dad is an engineer. He studied uh, uh, electronics engineering, and uh, so he never worked a lot with computers, but he was fascinated by them. Uh, so I grew up. Among uh, issues of Popular Mechanics, when it was still a proper technical magazine, Byte Magazine, uh, and many other technical, any technical magazine that he could get his hands on. So I, I got exposure to that from from very early on. I was, uh, and I think that helped uh, a lot in developing my own interest for for technology. I remember, as as young as maybe five or six years old, I remember I was drawing robots and inventing things on on uh, on paper um actually my my first computer is is one that my dad got for me uh which was a Timex Sinclair 1000 uh if you've ever heard of those it's it was the us equivalent of the famous ZX81 in the uk and it had a fantastic 1 kilobyte of ram and uh it was that was my proper start in computing. That's when I started learning Basic. I was about 10 years old at the time. Uh, later, I I got a Commodore 64. I I started reading almost every every computing magazine that I could get my hands on. Uh, some of the early also Commodore magazines like uh, Compute and Compute's Gazette. Uh, whenever I could get uh, I could get them. I I grew up in Mexico uh so it was not always easy to get uh US magazines and books there but as much as I could I would uh, I would try to to get them read the programs I was of the generation of kids who would type programs from magazines into their computers and uh and run games and whatever um and uh, that that was my that was my start actually uh, eventually, when I was about uh, 15 years old, I managed to get the program that I wrote published in uh, Compute uh, Gazette. By the time I had a Commodore 128, uh, and I wrote a program that allowed you to create a catalog of your floppy disks, which was uh, a problem in that era, right? Before hard disks, you would be shuffling floppy disks uh, all the time. And, I, and uh, everyone who used a computer had a growing collection of these things. Uh, so that was something I, I wrote to, to scratch my own itch, as they say, and, uh, and ultimately turned into my, my first publication. Um, then I, I went on to study uh, computer engineering in college, and that's when I got started in the area of uh, computer security. And if I, I,
0: uh, I just interrupt you there, yes. at what university did you study?
1: I studied at the National University of Mexico, which is, uh, is Mexico, it's, it's the largest – it's in Mexico City. It's the largest university in Mexico. It's, it's the national university. Uh, it, uh, uh, at the time I was studying there, there were something like 300,000 students in the university. So it's a very big university, many campuses, not only in Mexico City, but all throughout the country. Uh, and it covers basically every field of study that you could uh, that you could imagine
0: i think I think you might be- uh, and it was one of the I think you might be the first person i 've interviewed who uh, can give us an account of what it 's like to study at university in mexico uh, it's you know of course it 's different in different countries uh, is it i mean so like I think many people listening will have a sort of more more or less a kind of American model in mind where you study for four years and you take a variety of classes and you have a major is that is that how it worked for you?
1: It's basically it's basically like that. In um, in in there, they call them. Uh, it's like schools, like a school of engineering or school of science. Um, and the, the path I took was uh, computer in, uh, computer engineering. So that's when I, I I took a bunch of of course general classes like the, the the common set of classes that you have to take in college, but also more specialized uh, classes, not only in computing but also in electronics. In uh, digital design, computer architecture, data center management—all sorts of, of miscellaneous, various things—that uh, try that to provide you with a, with a fairly complete picture. It's actually a very good university, uh, and one of the one of the things is that it it has a lot of infrastructure. So actually, uh, it was do- while I was studying in college that I started working at the. The main uh, the computer center of the university uh, bought a Cray supercomputer, uh, which was back when Cray computer was still in existence and was making these huge, super expensive machines with a lot of processing power, at least by the standards of the time. Huh? Uh, so they bought a, a Cray supercomputer, and I... I was able to get uh, a job in the supercomputer center, first as an intern and then as, a, as an employee. And that's when I started uh, uh, working as a Unix system administrator. I started learning Unix. And later, I started getting interested in computer security because someone had to take care of these things. There, were, there had been a couple of uh, security incidents, and I, I found it very interesting, and that's when I started uh, learning about that. And that actually turned into my my career, right? Uh, computer security. I went on from there to to study uh, a PhD in the US at Purdue University, where I did my PhD in computer science, and my my field of uh, specialization was uh, computer security and intrusion detection, which was the topic of my PhD dissertation. Um, and uh, I mean, by then I was long hooked into into computing, huh? Uh, I, I worked uh, then for a few years at uh, IBM at the IBM Research Lab in uh, in Zurich in Switzerland. Then,
0: and if I could just pause, by- you, pause yes. you there in your story. Um, uh, so, what was it like? Uh, I mean, I guess I've got two questions. You've moved around a lot, um, and uh, yes. <laughs> what was what was it like moving from uh, Mexico to the United States when you, uh, I, I imagine, moved to Indiana?
1: I moved to Indiana, yes. It was, uh, it, it was an experience, yeah. As, uh, you know, as my, my PhD advisor sent me an email that I still have. Uh, before When I had already been accepted at the university, uh, but before I started, he sent me an email that said, um, when you go back home, which you eventually will, it will be with a much wider perspective of, of the world and this is both a loss and a gain and this is this is something that I have found very true right as, as you said I have moved a lot around in my life every place is different every place gives you a lot of richness you learn a lot of things but you also lose some things I, I, I noticed that uh, basically I, I don't consider myself a and a citizen of anywhere in particular because I have lived in so many different parts of the world. Um, my, my, actually, my moving started very young. I, because I was actually born in Argentina, uh, but I grew up in Mexico. Uh, and even within Mexico, my family moves around a lot due to uh, job and school and other things. So as, as long as I can remember, I've, I've moved around a lot. So for me, going to the U.S. was not such a drastic change. Of course, the many cultural aspects and and other things were different. Uh, But ultimately, I I found it a very interesting experience.
0: Um, I've got uh, just a personal observation to make, and then I'd like to ask you a little bit more about about that. But, um, yeah, so I've moved around a fair amount in my life, too. You know, when I was a kid, my parents didn't really move a lot, but I ended up going to six different schools from kindergarten to grade 12. um, Oh, wow. And... uh, and um i moved to the uk in 1999 moved to london uh and thrived thrived there in that country in a way it wasn't possible for me to thrive in canada for for mm-hmm. a number of reasons and i i feel the same way uh you know it's it about about you know not really i mean if i you know i think i feel the same way to what you describe where it's there's not really any particular place where i feel like i really belong uh, but for me it was it's it's funny that you know when you People tend to assume that everybody's the same as they are. Um mm-hmm. and, and when a lot of people hear that they think, Oh, it must have it must have been terrible to have lost that sense of home and it's like I never had that. Uh mm-hmm. I actually carry a fair amount of resentment towards the people in the place where I where I actually grew up. I never fit mm-hmm. in there. It was never a home. There was nothing to mm-hmm. lose. Uh, and that that the, the, the idea of feeling at home in a certain place is just something that I've never had. Uh, and don't miss. <laughs> and and don't, in, a, in a sense, don't even it, it just seems kind of strange to me. Uh, right. You know that that uh, and and, you know, just sort of culturally speaking, I come from a Mennonite background. And Mennonites are people who don't have any particular connection to a place culturally so the whole right. the whole idea of having a particular place that's your home yeah i get it. it wasn't there for for me to lose and and you know it's it's funny actually how many people there are like that and when you when you move around you tend to you tend to meet them
1: exactly yeah and uh, and uh it's it's exactly like that for me as well uh, that uh, ultimately for me home of course at the moment home is where my family is and home is wherever the people I care for are, right? Uh, so it, it becomes less geographically rooted and more rooted on other things, on what's important to you, on people or on events or on maybe a job or whatever it is for for, for each person. And I think this is, as, as I said before, this is both a loss and a gain, Um uh, because I also see people that have never left for example, some of my old friends that never left and and they for them it's it's inconceivable to leave right because this is where everything is and I have met a lot of people who are like this that that they, they wouldn't even consider leaving where they are uh, which is something that for me is natural right
0: It's funny you say that yeah I have a friend uh, an old friend who's a philosopher who lo- has an old study that he can you know he can never track down but he loves to cite all the time in which um, people, you know, in the rankings of things that would be a catastrophe in their life, number one is moving and number two is, number two is divorce. Um, uh, People would rather, rather, people would prefer in the end, if they had to choose between divorce and moving, they'd choose divorce over moving. And uh, it's, it's, it's a really, it's a really interesting phenomenon. Um, Wow. Yeah. yeah. And so, and so you, so you, uh, you moved to uh, Zurich to be a hotshot at IBM. Yes. what, What was, what was, what was that like moving to Zurich?
1: Um, you know, this was, uh, it's, it's interesting uh, because in some ways uh, the, the culture in, in Switzerland is more similar to, to Mexico than the, than, than the U.S. Um, for example, in the sense of uh, family, uh, I, I find that uh, people here tend to be very close to their family, which is the same in, in, in Mexico. And it's not so much in the U.S. It depends, of course. It's, I, this is a very broad generalization, right? But, I mean, there are certain little things that I, that I find very familiar. On the other hand, uh, of course, Switzerland is a, it's a great country. It's, it's very safe. It's very clean. Everything works. All of the, all, all of the stereotypes that you have heard are, are true, right? Um,
0: yeah, but I, my, I've actually – but I can't help myself. My joke about the Swiss is that they're Germans without the sense of humor.
1: <laughs> yes yeah maybe that actually that's that's one of the things right i mean it's it can be it can be a bit uh, disconcerting for someone coming from a from more from a warmer culture right uh, the the swiss are are always uh, polite are always kind are always proper but it's it's very hard to get really close in a personal sense to 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 the people and this is just a, an aspect of their culture, right? Um, and this, this can be disconcerting for someone moving in. But ultimately, uh, you know, uh, we, we lived here for a few years. Then we decided to go back to Mexico, and we ended up coming back to Switzerland. Uh, so it's, uh, it's really a nice place, and, uh, and that's why we're back.
0: And um, along the way, you worked for a company called CF Engine. Yes. I was so if you could talk uh, a little bit about about that. Of course, yes. So uh,
1: you know, when uh, when we when we moved back to Mexico, uh, I worked for for a big, uh, very big uh, computer company uh, whose name I'm not going to mention because of what comes next. And uh, I was working as a consultant. And uh, one of the things that struck me as as very very odd was that a lot of things were still being done by hand, right? That uh, even in very large projects, someone would be there sitting the whole night configuring machines and uh, and and doing these things over and over and over again by hand. And I have always been very interested in automation uh, from from very early on. Uh, So I knew about this program called CFEngine, which is basically a configuration management tool. Uh, It's the it's the granddaddy, if, uh, to, to say it somehow, of tools like Puppet and Ansible and Chef and other configuration management tools that are that are very well known now, but CFEngine came out 20 years before any of those. So I started learning about it, and I, I realized that a new version had just come out, version three, uh, which was very different from the previous versions. It used a different uh, language for configuration. And there was very little uh, information about it. So I started teaching myself the tool, how to use it. And I thought this was a good opportunity to, to fulfill a long time dream of mine, which was to write a book. Um, so I started putting together a, a proposal for a book and uh, I shopped it around for a little bit and eventually O'Reilly af- accepted it. And if... As you know, if you grew up in the 90s as a technical person, the, the mecca of technical books uh, was and continues to be in many, in many ways O'Reilly. Um, I, I grew up techni- professionally with, uh, with O'Reilly books, uh, as did many other people. So for me, getting the book accepted was, uh, was a very big deal. Uh, by then, and I'm, I'm coming back to your question. I'm not, I'm not uh, diverting uh, from it. Um, by then, I, I was uh, participating in the CF Engine community in the mailing lists and things like this, so I sent an email to Mark Burgess, who is the main author of, of CF Engine, to tell him, hey, by the way, I thought you should know that I'm, I got this book proposal accepted by O'Reilly, so the book will come out in, in some time, and in return, he offered me a job at the company. Uh, so it turns out that CF Engine started as, a, as an open source project, which it continues to be. But then uh, he, he founded a company to, to sell uh, a commercial uh, version and professional services around CFEngine. Um, and then they, they offered me a position also as a, as a consultant. And I wasn't completely happy at my, at my current job at the time. So I thought this is a great opportunity huh? Uh, so I, I came on board. I worked at CF Engine for, for a few years, got the book published, uh, which was, uh, it, it was a win-win for both sides, right? I mean, I, I got a lot of, uh, support for, for writing the book, uh, by working there. And also the company got a lot of, uh, of publicity and, and promotion from having an O'Reilly book published about the product. Um, so that was, that was a very, a very, uh, a very good experience, a very pleasant experience. It was a very, very good team of people, um, and, uh, and yeah, that was uh, that was my experience with CFEngine. Which uh, then a few a few years after, uh, O'Reilly has been shifting some of its priorities. Now they focus a lot more on, on video content and tutorials and conferences, uh, and not so much in books. They they have become much stricter. Uh, in in the books that they publish because it, it i guess it's a it's it's a lot of investment um, so they decided that they didn't want to publish my book anymore it's a it's a pretty niche market book <laughs> so it wasn't a, a top seller i guess uh but they were they were very kind about it and they agreed to revert the rights of the book back to me uh which is when I started uh publishing it as a as a self published book which Eventually brought me
0: to Limpop. Yeah, I've got I've got some questions that I'd like to ask you about that specifically. Getting getting your rights back is actually a kind of hot topic in uh, in the self publishing world. Um, but yes. before before we move on to that, there are a couple of other things I wanted to talk to you about. One of which is um, uh, you know I was it was really interesting reading for me to read up about CF Engine and the way it was it was open source um, mm-hmm. and it was meant to provide people with a way to automate the management of numerous computing systems and servers at the same time. And as you were, as you were saying about the, the big company that that shall not be named, uh, where people <laughs> were doing things manually, actually a lot of human potential was unleashed with the automation of these networks of computing machines. Exactly, and so this actually exactly. represents a very significant moment in, I guess, the post-industrial era. Exactly.
1: Actually, this is, this is a, a, a very good uh, point because – uh, CF Engine drew a lot of ideas from uh, f- from this. Um, there's an author, and his name is is escaping me at the moment. I, it will come back to me in a moment. But he he wrote about the um, the three waves of human evolution. And if um, in fact, if, if you search for the three waves, you will see the name.
0: I've got it. And introduction to your book. I'll just open it up.
1: Uh, exactly. So. The three waves are in the first wave, it's everyone does their own thing. Right. And, and for example, in terms of human society, this is the, 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 the time of history when people were building their own pots and tools and they were planting their own food and they were growing their own animals. Right. The second wave is when we have economies of scale. Right. When people start specializing and you no longer grow your plans, you buy them at the market from someone who does this at scale. And in return, you provide some other service. And ultimately, the third wave is the wave in which we are now, in which it's not so much about products, it's more about ideas. And now the really valuable things are the ideas and the, te- the, 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 the processes and the technologies that people invent, right? In the sense of Computer system administration, we used to compare CF engine to the third wave of evolution because the idea is exactly as you said, that you free the humans that are tending to the systems. You free them from the mundane, repetitive tasks, and you let them focus on higher level thinking, right? So instead of figuring out how to configure a web server so that it behaves in a certain way, you just say, I need three web servers and two database servers and and this and that. And you start thinking at a higher level because their lower levels are, are automated. Uh, yeah, and this is a very, idea, a very powerful idea.
0: Yeah. Thanks for that. Thanks for that great explanation. Um, uh, and putting it in that, in that high level context, which I think is so important. Uh, the author, by the way, is Alvin Toffler. Uh, yes. Thank the, book, you. the books you refer to in your book are future shock and the third wave. Um, exactly. Uh, actually. So on, on, on this topic, uh, so, automation is obviously something that that is sort of in the news. Um, uh, it has been in the news for you know a very long time i mean indeed yes. centuries when it comes to the potential for for job losses and and things like that um, and I just wanted to like talk to you for a, a little bit about that i mean my non experts you know news headline reading normal person's view of it is that you know people have been worried about automation taking jobs away for a long time. I think my 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 sort of Intuition leads me to fall more or less on the side that automation uh, tends to free up people to do other things, and, and automation gives them tools, it just becomes the new tool that you can do things with. But at the same time, particularly when I think about jobs like driving, like truck driving, mm-hmm. and there are, you know, like three million tr- truck drivers in the United States, I think. A lot of people like doing jobs that. are are repetitive and where you kind of learn what you need to do once. And it might, it might be like, I mean, I could never drive a a truck, honestly, like I think I just couldn't. Um, Mm -hmm. um, So I'm not saying these things are easy, but they do come easy to some people. And when they learn them, then they, they, they've acquired a skill and they've acquired a trade and now they want to, you know, turn on the radio and like, you know, have their hand on the wheel. And, uh, and try and enjoy, you know, I mean, trucking in particular is actually a very difficult job in a lot of ways with time away from family and hard hours and things like that, and mistreatment by, by management and things like that. But at the same time, there's just a certain kind of activity that I think some people are suited towards, you know, like I, I like to live in my head and a lot of people like to live in their hands. Um, mm-hmm. And so one concern I have when I think about this is that like if, what if because because of what we can now do with machine learning and robotics and things like that, if the pace of change goes in in things like self-driving cars, if it continues the way it has in the next 10 years, like it has in the past 10 years, it's actually Mm -hmm. possible that we might end, you know, to go into sort of sci-fi or futurist kind of ways of thinking. We could end up in an age when all those jobs, the, the, the category of activity of kind of manual labor becomes very, there are only very few Niches left where it needs to be done. I mean, do you do you do you have concerns about about that kind of thing when you think about it?
1: Um, you know, I, I think uh, my my thinking about this is that this has been a concern uh, as long as you said as long as technology has existed. Right, at every stage of human evolution, there have been worries that the new technologies will destroy jobs and will create massive economic uh, problems. For example, this happened when the first machines appeared, and a lot of uh, human things that people used to do with their hands started being done uh, by machines or by tools, right? Uh, this happened, uh, again, with, uh, with uh, first with human powered machines, then with uh, engine powered machines, then with computers, now with faster computers and more automation and AI. What I think is that pe- we people will always find things to do with our time, uh, and there will always be things that that people can uh, can do to to develop their interests and and their passion. Right. Coming back to the example that you just mentioned, what if uh, and maybe this this is simplistic thinking, maybe, huh? but uh, what if instead of if you like driving and if you like the, the, the feeling of this, what if you could do it just for fun and not because you have to do it 12 hours a day and you and suffer mistreatment by management and long hours away from home and you can just do it when you feel like it and and, and as you want it, right? Um, on the other hand, I think we are very far away from fully automating a lot of these jobs. As As much progress as we have made, I think it's... It's it's still it's still uh, a bit far away, so I think we still have time to think about this. But my my feeling tells me that there will always be other interesting things to do with our time and with our with our interests and with our abilities, despite the progress of automation. And there will be certain things that machines I I am I'm pretty confident will never be able to do. Right, uh, creative thinking. Uh, this this kind of things will will be very hard or impossible uh, ever to to automate. So I think there will always be room for for humans in everything we do.
0: Thanks very much for for sharing that. That's a very optimistic <laughs> answer, and I hope I hope you're right. So we've been talking about some big serious things, uh, and uh, <laughs> not that I want to make light of it, but your book on uh, your latest book on Lean Pub is about uh, automating tasks on your Mac to make it more, more fun yes. to, to use your Mac yes. uh, using something called Hammerspoon. which And I really enjoyed getting into it. And, and, and uh, just to set the stage, um, so uh, using this, this uh, I'll call it a tool, Hammerspoon, mm-hmm. um, you, mm-hmm. can, you can do things like uh, set it up. So if you select some text in, say, German, then you can um, uh, just, you know, use a sort of short keyboard shortcut you've set up and have something pop up with a translation in English. Uh, and yes. that's, that's just one example. Uh, and so before we go on, so can I use hammers? Every, I've got sort of various um, habits, and I've never found – I haven't looked very hard, I've, I confess, but that I haven't found a way of automating, which are um, at various times of day or at various times of week, I like to change sort of – the background image on my Mac. So I've got a particular image mm-hmm. for the mm-hmm. weekend. I've got one for when I'm working during the day and then one for when, you know, I've, I've turned off work and now I'm using my computer for other things at night. Can I yes. use Hammerspoon to do, to do that? Yes, absolutely. Okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> basically, Hammerspoon um, allows you to automate basic almost everything that you have on your Mac. Um, I, I should mention it's a Mac-specific tool, but it, it has very deep integration so you can definitely have things based on time of day, on location, on, for example, I have uh, I have a few applications that need to be reconfigured when I come from the office, uh, when I come to the office or leave the office because they need to reconfigure their proxy uh, for using the in the office uh, network. So I have some conditions that trigger when there's some, a change in the wireless network to which my machine is connected. So that when I leave the office and I come home, it detects this change and it automatically reconfigures this, this application. This is something that, for example, you can also have it triggered based on time of day, on day of the week, on, even on location, uh, Hammerspoon can get uh, geographical information. And maybe you can have it said that when you're at home or where you are, when you are at the airport or when you are at the office, you have different sets of things happen. It's really a, it's a, it's a super powerful application. And I, I really like it.
0: Yeah, that's, that's amazing. So I was, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about, um you know, how it, how it actually works under the hood and then uh, maybe explain then how as a user, you would set up. A,
1: yes, a set of up, course. A task or a
0: set of, of things.
1: Of course. Uh, First of all, I'd like to comment on uh, on, uh, something you said at the very beginning, which is sort of the the lighter side of things. Um, And and the the fact is that I I love technology. I've always loved technology. And as I have progressed in in my professional career, my job is less and less technical, right? It's more about planning. It's more about design. It's more about architecture and things like this but I have never been able to subtract myself from actually tinkering with machines and, and playing with technology directly, which is why outside of, of work, I, I keep coding, I keep programming, and that's that's why I ended up writing this book. Um, so basically, um, Hammerspoon has... Uh, it's it's a math application which has integrations into a lot of the subsystems that compose the macOS operating system. So it has... Uh, integrations into the UI events, it has integrations into the file system, it has integrations into the sound system, the networking system, and a bunch of other things. And all of these integrations are exposed through Lua, which is a scripting language, which was uh, developed from the beginning as, as an embeddable scripting language, which means that it's it has facilities built into the into the language and the framework that make it very easy to integrate into other applications. So Lua, uh, for example, is very commonly used in video games. A lot of uh, uh, new video games that allow you to program things into them use Lua uh, as their as their scripting language. So spawn also uses Lua, and through Lua you can basically just write commands. So, uh, for example, there's a uh, a Hammerspoon library which is called the uh, hs.window and through this library you can manipulate the windows on your machine. So you can find which windows are, are on the screen at the moment, which ones belong to different applications and you can also manipulate them. So you can for example change their size, change their position, move them back and forth with respect to one another. Um, so this is something that I use very often with, with shortcuts on my keyboard. I can make one window take only half of the screen and then the other take the other half of the screen. Or when I'm connected to my external monitor in the office, I can move windows from one from one screen to the other uh, using my keyboard. And all of this uh, is, is done basically by writing code. So Hammerspoon is... It's an automation tool which is very suited towards programmers because you you need to do a, a bit at least a bit of programming uh to to set it up the way you want it uh lua also has sorry Hammerspoon also has a uh libraries called spoons which make it easier to to use it without so much coding so spoons are are modules that allow you to, to basically just load them and use them for different tasks and uh, there's there's a lot of spoons that have been contributed by by people in the community, for everything from window manipulation to integration with uh, uh, smart bolts smart light bulbs at home, or sound systems, or uh, all sorts of things that you can just load, uh, tell it what you need to do, and then use it without having to worry too much about how it works. But if you really if you know how to program a little bit, you can have a Tremendous amount of control over over the things that happen on your Mac.
0: That's amazing. Thanks very much for that very clear description. Uh, I'm looking forward to uh, trying to figure out a little bit of this myself because there are, as you know, there are some. I mean, the reason it exists is because there are some things that we do all the time, and you know that description, that that example you have of you know when you're switching Wi-Fi networks or going from one place to another and having uh, just the settings all happen automatically is just just sounds like magic.
1: Exactly. It is. And it is like magic. And, you know, it, it often happens that we get used to doing these repetitive tasks. Like it's, uh, for example, this this example you mentioned before with the translation, particularly because I live in a German-speaking country and I speak a bit of German, but not not very fluently yet. So all the time I was choosing, selecting some tests, copying it, going to Google Translate, pasting it. And ultimately, I realized this was something I could automate. And one of the objects in one and in this case I can give you a concrete example Hammerspoon spoon has integration into the, the the clipboard subsystem so I can see which text is selected or copied into the clipboard and on the other hand it allows me to open a, a, a browser window that I can point at a specific URL and by it, by connecting these two I can basically have a hotkey that Copies the currently selected text, opens a browser window that goes to Google Translate, puts the selected text there, and automatically does the translation. And it saves me a lot of time every day.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's just amazing. And uh, so, just moving on to the, the the third part and last part of the of the interview, where we talk about uh, the, the uh, interviewee's experiences as as an author and a self published author. So, um, you've got you've had an interesting. Uh, Journey there. So you, you, you talked a little bit already about your experience with O'Reilly. You you mentioned shopping around uh, mm-hmm. your idea. Um, I was wondering if you could, it's, it's funny because to people who are sort of familiar with what these things mean, that's very obvious. But to people who are <laughs> on the other side of it and who are like, you know, I'd really like to be an author myself, even if they're maybe a little bit familiar with what that means. So okay, obviously from the context, that means approaching publishers with an idea. How did you go about doing that? Did you send emails? Did you have you know a business plan? Not really.
1: I I did it a bit uh, empirically. Actually, um, my first approach was to uh, a publisher called Pragmatic Programmers, who also publish technical books. They they have a a set of very nice books. Uh, And the reason I approached them first was because they organized at the time something that they called the Pragmatic Programmers Writing Month, which is equivalent, if you heard of it, of the novel, uh, what is it? The NaNoWriMo. NaNoWriMo, right? The, the, the month during which you are encouraged, you can sign up and you have to write 50,000 words or something and to get a jump start on your book. So basically, they organized something like this uh, at the same time as NaNoWriMo, but for technical books. So they were encouraging people to sign up, to write a certain amount of text every day. And uh and basically by 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 doing this for a full month uh jump starting their technical book. So I signed up with my idea for the for the CF Engine book. And uh and I did it. I uh, I, I wrote uh, uh every day. I put together an outline and I started filling it in. And by the end I had one or two chapters pretty pretty full of, of content, uh, I thought. Um and uh, then I submitted my proposal to them, to Pragmatic Programmers, uh, and uh, they they didn't want to take it because they were working on on a similar book at the time, uh, and they felt there was there was a lot of overlap uh, between that and uh, my proposal. So then I my next try was O'Reilly, but you know O'Reilly as a as a very popular uh, publisher, uh, they. My guess is that they received or and probably continue to receive a lot of uh, proposals from different people. So there are guidelines for potential authors try to discourage you as much as possible. Uh, they, they, they say things like, oh, you, you really need to think carefully before doing this. We have a very strict process and it's a very low percentage of people who get accepted, which I think makes sense. They try to filter out the the people who would just randomly submit something so but still it was it was a, a dream of mine to have a O'Reilly book so i sent them my proposal and and they liked it uh, so actually maybe shopping around was uh, was a bit of an exaggeration i i only submitted it to two places <laughs> and the second one accepted it uh, but yeah ultimately it was it was an extremely, I think it was an extraordinary experience to to work with O'Reilly. And as I wrote somewhere, um, after working with them, uh, I realized why their books uh, are so good or were so good, right? Uh, Because the the, the whole process, the whole editorial process, I think this is what a good book publisher gets you. And which is, of course, harder to get as a self-published author, right? You get an editor, that, that basically walks along you through the whole process. And, and he asks you questions and he tells you, hey, this is not very clear. What can we do here? He tries to learn about what you're writing and he, he really gets engaged. Uh, I was very lucky to have a, an editor like this. Uh, and and this, this was for me an eye-opening experience that I realized writing a book is much more than just putting the words on on, on paper, right? It's, it's about structuring your ideas and really, a lot of hard work uh, in in uh, motivating yourself, and of course, here having a good editor also helps a lot because he he pushes you a little bit in uh, to continue working.
0: Yeah, it's 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 really interesting having talked to uh, quite a few people in, in interviews for this podcast about it, uh, how how some people react to the, the experience of, of having a working with a conventional publisher and having an editor and how other people react. And you know, of course it depends on who the publisher is and who they work with within that publisher and stuff like that. But it, it's, uh, there are there are some people who are just like the last thing I want is some editor looking over my shoulder, telling me what to do with my book. Um, yeah. and, and uh, but then and then there are other people for whom that that's exactly what they want. And then they're, you know and then it, it's also project specific, right? Um there might of be just a certain kind of project where you're like this book absolutely needs to have a professional editor involved in its production, and then there are other ones where you know it just it just doesn't there's no there's no need for that or it would it would slow me down and I want to get this out right away or something like that and so you you yes. like, you mentioned uh, you went through the experience of getting your rights back for the book how did how did that mm-hmm.
1: work um, actually this was this this happened pretty naturally and uh, and in fact the initiative came from them. Um, the thing was that I, I published the initial release of the book. Then I did an update a few months later and another one, a few months later. Um, and then I, there was a, a fairly long period of time during which I didn't have a lot of time to work on the book. So there was, there was no updates for a while. And, uh, when I started thinking about updating it again, uh, my editor came back to me and said, you know, uh, we are we are doing a bit of a cleanup in the catalog. We are focusing only on the on the high-value books. And so we have decided that that your book, uh, we're no longer interested in publishing your book. We will continue selling it as much as, particularly the, the electronic uh, version of the book. Uh, in fact, the original version of my book is still available in, in Safari Books Online, which is the, the online uh, catalog that O'Reilly keeps. And um, but then he said, but uh, then I asked him, okay, so what what happens now, right? Is is the book dead, or can I can I continue writing it? And he says, well, you know, we could publish new release new versions, but we wouldn't be able to do the whole editorial process of do the the review and the typesetting and all of this. You would have to do this on your own. And then I I suggested, well, why don't, would it be possible to get the books, uh, the rights of the book back to me so that I can publish it on my own uh, or through some other publisher? And he said, okay, let me check on that. And they said, yes. Basically, it was it was fairly painless. Then they sent me a letter saying that uh, by this letter, we acknowledge that the books, uh, the the books rights uh, are are assigned back to you and you can do whatever you want. Uh, with some conditions like removing branding and graphics and things like this from the book. And that was it. Basically that, that was it. As soon as I got the, this confirmation, I took the PDF almost as I had it and published it on my own, uh, on Amazon. Uh, but, uh, it was, uh, it was, uh, sometime after that I, I started looking around at, uh at places where I could uh, do the self-publishing in a, in a more elegant fashion, and that's when I found LeanPub, and, uh, and that was it.
0: I've got a question about that. So uh, this is this is very kind of in the weeds, but uh, to people who face this challenge, hearing about someone's experience doing it would probably be extremely helpful. Um, so you had a, a written manuscript for the book, and then you wanted to publish it on LeanPub, and um, to do that, we, we have a bring your own book feature, which is, you know, mm-hmm. our workflow, which is upload your PDF, and then that, that's amazing. Yes. And then you can use all of LeanPub's 80% royalty rate and coupons and, and all that bundling and all that kind of great stuff. Uh, but you can also, if you want to, convert your, your manuscript to uh, LeanPub flavored markdown or Markua, um, mm-hmm. which are our in house markup syntax yeah, yeah, yeah. syntaxes mm-hmm. for for publishing books, uh, and and Markuo, of course, is the one we recommend to everyone going forward. And so how did you go about taking your manuscript and putting it into Markuo? Was that a laborious process, or was it just a matter of, like, putting, you know, number sign in front of your chapter titles?
1: It, it, no, it, it was a bit laborious, uh, but I think I was also lucky. So origin the the native format that was used for, for uh, my book at O'Reilly was DocBook, which is an XML-based format. Um, it's like, like any XML format. It's very verbose. It's very very structured. But I was lucky that sometime before, O'Reilly also started using uh, another format called ASCII doc. Uh, so, and they did the initial conversion of my book to ASCII for me because I was, still, I was still publishing the book with them. So by the time I got the, the rights of the book assigned to me, I had my manuscript in Asciidoc doc format, which is a text-based format similar to Markdown or Markua, but with some different conventions, right? So I was able to fairly easily convert my files from ASCII-Doc to Markdown by using, by using uh, available tools like Pandoc. Um, and that allowed me to basically just publish the, the book almost right away with LeanPub. It was fairly painless. There, it required still some manual intervention because there were some sections of the book that even within the AsciiDoc doc file were formatted using HTML because they had some very specialized placement or colors or alignments or things like this. Uh, so those parts I still had to convert by hand. But overall, it was, a, it was a, a fairly painless experience. I think we are lucky to, to now be in a time where very powerful conversion tools are available. For example, Pandoc uh, alone uh, probably can take care of 80% of the format conversion needs for most uh, for most documents. Um, and I had to do a bit of tricks because, for example, AsciiDoc is not very well supported by Pandoc yet. Uh, so I had to use some other tools. I also had to do some some uh, manual uh, scripting to transform certain aspects of the book. Uh, but overall, I was uh, I was very happy with it. Um, now the the next step, which which I should probably mention, is that uh, I I converted my book from Markdown to Org mode. I don't know if you're familiar with Org mode. It's a it's a markup format which was developed uh, in the Emacs world, the Emacs editor. And it's a, it's a very powerful format from which you can export a lot of other different formats. So eventually I converted my whole book to org mode. And from there, I was generating Markdown, uh, Mark, uh, LeanPog flavor Markdown. But now I started using Markua. And the nice thing is that my source text, the one I edit continues to be in org mode and I'm just now exporting it in a different format. And this is, uh, this is a very f- powerful combination.
0: Well, fantastic. Thank you very much for, for going into the details that, that kind of thing is, is, you know, gold, gold to authors yes. who are facing those challenges <laughs> themselves to hear, to hear about, uh, those processes. Um,
1: and I, uh, I should
0: just, just to complete
1: the thought, I should, I should mention that if anyone is interested, I like to write about this thing. So I have quite a few posts in, in my blog, uh, about the tools and the configurations and the processes that i that i use for this so if if any of our listeners uh, is interested uh, they can probably find some good information there
0: yeah and i should say uh, we we actively uh, invite authors to if they can write anything about their you know lean pub process uh, and they write posts about them. We link to them in our help center and we'll, you know, you know, post them in our author forum and and things like that. So we, we love hearing about that kind of stuff ourselves as well. So the last, the last question I always like to ask people on the podcast is if, if there's anything you can think of that you would ask us to build and we would do it for you or anything you would ask us to fix and we would fix it for you. uh, Can you think of anything you would ask for?
1: Of course. Um, So first I, I would like to say a couple of things that I would, like you not to change okay. and uh, one one of them is is the approachability of of you of peter of everyone at at LeanPup because it's it's uh it's not common to get direct answers from the founders or the co-founders of of a company when you ask a support question and i think this level of of direct involvement and and access is is fantastic Uh, asking a question and then getting it fixed right away or getting direct information from the people who are, who are building the product. This is extremely valuable and I have found it very, very nice in in dealing with you guys. Um, I was um, in terms of things that I would ask for. I think my main one would be to just finish the Markua implementation because the, the spec is there. It, it's very nice it's very powerful but there are quite a few things that are still not supported or not implemented um, so to me this would be this this would be uh, very nice uh, particularly for things like uh, uh, indexing for example I maybe I'm old-fashioned but I still like books that have an index and uh, my book has all of the indexing markup in there which is at the moment non-functional uh but if I could generate an index from it uh that would be very nice and uh, and there are a few other things that that I still find every once a, every once in a while that are not properly or fully implemented and this would be this would be my main uh, my main request well, thanks. Uh, other than,
0: yeah yeah well thank thanks very much for that the um uh with respect to markua this is something that we we made a we made a strategic decision to really focus on finishing it the uh, finishing the implementation of it. Sorry. Um, and, and so that is something that we are actively working on and we are going to be ecstatic <laughs> <laughs> when, it's, when it's fully implemented. Uh, it's, it's been a long, a long process, but, but I mean, you know, the vision is there and, and, you know, our authors, authors, like you can see it, we can see it. Uh, and we're, we're very much looking forward to the day when it's finished and when its implementation is finished and we are actively focusing on that to the exclusion of other things at that. That's very nice to Um, And when it comes to the the sort of direct touch, thank you very much for for talking about that as well. Um, It is really important to us to have that direct contact with authors and customers. You know, it does involve a fair amount of, you know, you know, saying the same thing over and over again to some extent, but that's, you know, that's, that's part of, part of the job. And, but what it does mean is, I mean, the, the approach that I take to every interaction I have with an author or, you know, a reader is what what systemic issue does this represent? There's the human factor, which which actually there is a lot you can do about that uh, with nudging and recommendations and and design and things like mm-hmm. that. But but ever and and in particular as well, I think I mean I, I maybe I'm a little bit romantic about it, but you know, not all services you interact with are services where you're going to be spending hundreds of hours on a project that might be very important to you, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, and mm-hmm. so when you're working with people who are writing. I mean, you know, and, and, you know, writing has a fair amount of marketing about it. LeanPub does encourages people to do in progress, in in progress publishing, which means basically every time you update with a new chapter, it's a little new book launch. And, you know, if someone is sitting there and they've, they've been like, and they don't, people don't necessarily tell us and we, you don't, you don't, of course you don't have to, everything should just work. But, you know, if you've been putting time and even money into marketing the launch of the next phase of your book and you hit the publish button and the book generation fails, and it's 11pm on Friday, <laughs> you know, Pacific time. And, you know, if we see that, you know, I, I might have had too many beers to answer or, or, you know, or whatever. But, but if, uh, you know, if I see it, you know, or Peter sees it, and someone's in trouble, you know, it's, it's not the same thing as like, you know, something trivial not working, you know, it's it's a big it's deal. And And writing a book is a huge investment. And so having that kind of as much direct contact as, as is useful for authors and for us to have because there 's matters of scale and and you know where your attention is going and how you 're using your attention and time responsibly that factor into everything but but that kind of direct contact is actually very important to us as on our side as well in a lot of ways and it 's one of the reasons we choose to do business that way
1: um, yeah and I can tell you I, th- I can tell you as an author it 's really valuable it 's something that really really makes you, I think, loyal as, as an author to, to have to, to know that people care about your
0: your book. Well thank you for saying that. We don't we don't yes. hear that all the time. <laughs> it's it's nice to hear that, is, that that what we believe is true. Um so uh, thank you very much Diego for taking the time out of your, your evening in, in in Switzerland to uh to talk to talk to me here. Um and thank you very much for being a lean pub author.
1: Thank you, Len. Thank you again for the opportunity. It was, uh, it was, uh, I really enjoyed talking to you, and uh, I hope we will do this sometime again.
0: Yes, thank you very much. And as always, thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the Front Matter podcast. If you like what you heard, please rate and review it wherever you found it, especially on iTunes. It really does help. And if you would like to be a LeanPub author, creating either a book or a course, please go to our website at LeanPub.com. Thanks.